Very grateful this morning to have uh, Nick Oakes with us to share the word. Um, Miranda and I and the kids were gone this past week. I'm grateful to have Nick here, uh, who's uh, prepared uh, a sermon to, to preach. Uh, uh, grateful for Nick's friendship. Uh, I know Nick through a preaching cohort, so a number of uh, pastors and pastors in training um, who um, are honing our skills in preaching the word. And Nick's an elder at Christ the King Church in Belfast, which is a, sort of a, uh, a sister church to us in a number of ways shared relationships across the years, and so I'm grateful to have Nick with us this morning. Thanks, Nick. Good morning. morning. Thank you for having me. We're going to be in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Chapter 5 and verses 31 to 40. These are the words of Jesus. He says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I'll pray now and ask for uh, God's blessing as we look at the word together this morning. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your many gifts to us. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints. We thank you for the singing. We thank you that we have your spirit to guide us. And Father, now we thank you for your word that has been written for us, that we can read it, that we can know who you are, and what you require of humans for uh, obedience towards you, Lord. We pray that you would call us to greater obedience this morning. We pray that you would call us to greater love and gratefulness for the work that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. God, we recognize that there are some hard sayings in the Gospels, things that Jesus said that were hard to hear, and in a way, this is one of them. Help us to, to hear it and receive it gladly, knowing that his intention for his people is their good. We know that you desire our good. We pray that you will feed us now from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we read our Bibles, uh, sometimes we find that the place which it describes to us is a courthouse. And the things that are happening in, in it 
are the proceedings of a trial. That's, that's pretty normal in the Bible. It's called covenant lawsuit, usually. And usually witnesses are called to give testimony against God's people for having broken the terms of his covenant. In our passage today, there's all kinds of witnesses that are produced. And witnesses are people that have seen something firsthand, and they're going to give an account of what they've seen, and they're going to establish the truth of, of something that's uh, an event that's taken place or something that has happened. The primary function of these witnesses, however, in our passage today in John 5, is to establish with certainty that Jesus is the Son of God. The courtroom here in this part of John, then, is not a criminal court. Sometimes it is in the Bible. Sometimes we find ourselves in criminal court and there's charges being brought, but not here today. The witnesses are doing something different. This is a family court, and uh, this court is trying to establish that God is Jesus' Father and that Jesus is God's Son. Keep in mind, though, that it is these same witnesses that testify to the divine sonship of Jesus who will also testify against all of those who reject the divine sonship of Jesus, right? These, these witnesses, um, we're going to see lots of different witnesses. They are used by God repeatedly to establish uh, his claims. This time, the claim is that Jesus is the Son of God and was sent by the Father. But these same witnesses will, will stand up at the last day at the judgment, and they will bear witness against all of those who reject Jesus and his sonship. The rules which guide the courtroom language in our passage today are founded in God's law in the Old Testament, especially one. A matter was only to be considered true on the basis of statements from multiple witnesses, never on the basis of the testimony of a single witness. Deuteronomy 19.15 says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrongdoing in connection with an offense that has been committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. That's the Old Testament. The New Testament upholds this principle as well, especially when the Apostle Paul forbids a charge to be brought against an elder on the account of only one witness. There needs to be two or three. If something's going to be established in the church, a big deal like a charge against an elder, there needs to be two or three witnesses. Jesus references this principle in our passage this morning when he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, then my testimony is not true. He, he knows that. He recognizes how God's law works and how, um, how a charge needs to be, how something, a matter needs to be established with multiple witnesses. Jesus does bear witness about himself. He is making a claim, and he's making a claim about himself. Um, repeatedly, he told the people, the followers, the crowds, who he was and what he was about. Um, but he also knows that he needs other witnesses outside of him to, to establish this claim. The reason why it's required to have two or three witnesses, I think this is obvious, is that a matter will be established with greater certainty, right? When, when there's just one, we, you know, sometimes if it's a human witness, is this guy lying? Is he telling the truth? Do we know? Uh, but if we've got two or three, and they weren't all colluding together, then it's much, much clearer that what they're advocating for is, is likely to be true. So that's why. And obviously the ninth commandment uh, forbids furnishing any kind of a witness, which is false, right? We, we're familiar with this, and we know how this works. In our passage, there's primarily one witness, but underneath that there's a bunch of witnesses. So the, the primary witness 
the, the first and chief witness to the divine sonship of Jesus is God the Father himself. Our passage will present other witnesses, but we must understand God the Father as being primary in confirming Jesus' claim. The other witnesses are legitimate. They're real, real witnesses, and it's worth hearing their testimony. It's worth hearing what they have to say. But we should understand them as underneath or proceeding from God himself. You'll see some of them very clearly are, are emanations of God himself. These other witnesses include God's messenger. That's going to be John the Baptist. So when you hear a reference to John multiple times in our passage today, just know that who we're talking about is John the Baptist. So we have God's messenger. We'll see God's power testify to Jesus, and we're going to see that in the works that Jesus performed. We're going to hear from God's own voice, and then we will hear from God's written word. And all, all of these things you can see are sort of underneath the primary witness, who is God the Father. The interesting thing is that though all of these witnesses are produced, though many, many witnesses are produced here, their testimony is rejected. If you look at the context of this passage, the, the primary audience, um, I think, is the Pharisees. I think Jesus is in dialogue with the Pharisees. And so what you're, what you're going to see at the end of this is that they end up rejecting all the witnesses. There's lots of proof given, but the Pharisees end up rejecting Jesus. It wasn't the quality of the witnesses, but sin in the hearts and minds of men which led to this rejection of the truth. We perceive rightly about ourselves as creatures made in the image of God that we're capable of making assessments and judgments, right? We hear something, somebody tells us something, and we know about ourselves. We know that, that creatures can make judgments. Humans can make judgments. I think the thing that we often fail to see is just how flawed and how bad our judgments are, how distorted this faculty is by sin, right? This, this judgment ability in us is really broken and uh, really often produces bad, bad results from a human point of view. The question that we must ask this morning is not, why didn't Jesus give us more proof that he was the Son of God? The, the better question is this, why, in light of so much proof, do humans still persist in unbelief? Why, in, in the face of all of these witnesses, God himself you know, is, is going to speak from heaven uh, in, the, in the gospel account, Jesus is going to do all these wonderful things. Why, in light of so much proof, do humans persist to disbelieve the word of God? The answer is that sin blinds men to God's truth. Sin blinds men to God's truth. Sin twists reality in the minds of men. Sin skews judgment. Sin is an intoxicant. People filled with sin don't steer their lives in straight lines. They don't have enough balance to stand upright. Their heads throb and the world spins around them as they lay on their beds. As Christians, we would like to convince ourselves that this only applies to unbelievers. And I think there's a, there's a way in which the primary audience here ends up being unbelievers. Jesus will say at the end of our passage to the Pharisees, you don't have the word of God in you, right? You, you refuse to come to me. And so there's a way in which the primary audience here is unbelievers. But if we try to convince ourselves that this is not our battle, then we're in, uh, in a lot of danger and could be in a lot of trouble. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul sort of famously speaks about the renewed minds that belong to those who are in Christ, right? We have a, we have a new mind, a, a mind that's capable of making sound judgment and thinking right thoughts, and that's, that's true. But we have to remember 
that having a renewed mind is not automatic for the Christian. Paul tells us in that very passage that it's actually a process, right? He says to put off the old man and put on the new man. The inclination towards irrational unbelief will linger in the life of a Christian, and it is our job to put it to death. That's this unbelief, this, this inclination in all of us. God says something, and automatically what comes up in our hearts is, meh, nope, don't, don't believe it. That's not true. I know better, right? Even as Christians, right? This will be our, uh, there is something new. We have the Spirit of God. Praise God. But this will be our fight as Christians for the rest of our lives to instead of what we feel in our sin nature, but to actually believe what God says and that's a process. That's called sanctification as we do that better and better. So let's look at the first witness together. We're going to go back to verse 33. I'll read 33 through 35 again. You sent to John, that's John the Baptist again, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. We read early on in this gospel account, that's John's gospel, that John the Baptist was sent to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus Christ. He said very plainly that he wasn't the light, but that he came to bear witness to the light, to bear witness about the light. That's right in the very beginning of the gospel of John. In verse 34 of our passage, Jesus said, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. Jesus recognized that a man like John the Baptist couldn't be a primary witness in determining his divinity. Jesus is the claim, right? The truth claim here. Jesus is saying, I came from heaven. The Father and I are one. The works that I'm doing are the works that the Father gave me to do. That's the claim. And so Jesus recognizes that the primary person to establish that claim can't be just another man, right? How does, a, how does John the Baptist know that Jesus lived with fa the Father for eternity past. And so Jesus recognizes that. He says, um, not, that I, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. At the same time, the testimony of John the Baptist should be and was considered reliable. His credibility to speak to the matter of Jesus' divinity was given him by God. Once again, God the Father is the primary witness, and John the Baptist's account is only reliable because he was acting as God's messenger. John the Baptist, we're told this in Luke's gospel, John the Baptist was the last of the prophets in the Old Covenant. As such, his ministry was ordained by God, and his words carried the authority of God. He was a man, but he was an authoritative messenger, and so the things that he has to say about uh, the person and ministry to authenticate Jesus' personhood and ministry should be considered reliable and authoritative. If you look at the second half of verse 34, you'll see the reason why Jesus appealed to John the Baptist. He told us that the reason he said these things was so that his hearers might be saved, which is really interesting, actually, if you consider that the primary hearers here are the, the Pharisees. But this is what he said. The reason that I'm saying these things are so that you might be saved. It would be possible in our passage to lose sight of the mission of Jesus. Most of the time here is devoted to testimony. How many of you watch all of the things that happen in the, in the Senate, in the White House, every time there's a trial and all the proceedings? There's a, there's a lot of 
goings on. And there's a little bit of that here, right? We're going to call witnesses, or we're going to hear testimony. And it would be easy, I think, to lose sight of what Jesus is here to do. And Jesus hasn't lost sight. He tells us right in verse 34, I've not lost sight of my mission in all of this. I'm going to keep presenting proofs to you about who I am. But my mission is, is to come and seek and save that which is lost. My goal, the reason I'm doing this, it's not for no reason. It's that some of you might hear and might be saved. His goal is not to brag about, oh, do you know who my dad is? <laughs> um, you know, this is not about title. This is not about lineage. His goal is to call men to saving belief in the truth. This is the goal of the entire Gospel of John. But in order for Jesus to do this, however, he's got to do something hard, right? This is where the hard word comes in. He has to point out the relentless inclination towards unbelief that sin produces in the hearts of men. If he wants some to, to be saved, if he wants some to believe the truth, he has to tell everybody that your initial reaction is going to be to disbelieve the truth. He's going to have to tell you why you don't want to believe the truth. He's going to have to point out what it is in your heart and just how sticky it is and how stuck it is and how firmly ingrained it is to disbelieve the things that God says. So that's why Jesus comes in with this, this hard word here uh, is because sin is a hard problem and he's confronting it head on. When it comes to the actual testimony that John the Baptist gave, we would have to say it's pretty, it's pretty stunning. It is recorded for us in the Gospel of John. I'll read some snippets for you. This is the first chapter of John. Uh, John 1.29 says, The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm going to skip down to verse 34 of chapter 1. He says, And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So we have John the Baptist. This is his testimony. He's standing up in the courtroom. He's standing up before all the crowds and all the people. Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Son of God. These two points really are central to the Christian faith, right? That, that Jesus is divine. He's, he's God himself. And that he came to take away our sin. Um, they're the central points of Christianity, and they're also, they also happen to be the most offensive to the unbeliever, right? To the unbelieving heart. These, these two things, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about these things and the different kinds of people that will have different responses to them, but they're offensive things. For some, it's the scandal of God in a human body, right? That, that's too much for some people to, to imagine or fathom or think is possible. It's, that's scandalous. For others, it's the humility of needing this Lamb of God to take away sin, right? The response is going to be, what sin? I don't, I don't need a Lamb of God to, to take away sin. We don't need blood sacrifice. This is too much. This is too, too strange, and we don't need it. No thanks. So these are the, sort of the two, two of the central tenets of Christianity, and they are offensive to the, the unbelieving world and to the unbelieving heart and mind. Verse 35 of our passage, so back in John 5 now, Verse 35 points out that initially, the religious leaders may have embraced the ministry of John the Baptist. It says that they were, for a while, willing to rejoice in his light. I thought that was, thought that was really interesting. It doesn't say why they rejoiced in his light. It doesn't say when they stopped rejoicing in the light. Um, but I sort of was speculating about this a little bit. And um, I would guess that maybe 
The reason they rejoiced in John the Baptist's light initially is because he was so similar to other things that they held dear, right? He's an Old Testament prophet. He sort of, he shows up in the spirit of Elijah. There's sort of uh, a law and the prophets kind of thing about this guy. And so you can see the religious leaders in Jesus' day sort of initially being like, all right, this is, this is one of our guys. This guy is sort of Moses, law, uh, Old Testament, and they would be real, real excited about that, maybe. They rejoiced in John's light for a while. The problem came when he pointed at Jesus and said, this is the Son of God, this is the Lamb who's going to take away the sin of the world. And that they didn't, they didn't like very well. They started to get very upset and offended about that. Ultimately, the religious leaders did not receive the testimony of John. They continued in unbelief. We must ask ourselves, why? Why would they do this? Their sin at this point is the sin of not listening to God's authoritative messenger. John the Baptist is God's authoritative messenger. If they rejected Jesus' claims about himself, they should have at least listened to John the Baptist. And the truth is that all of us in this room, we still do this, right? We convince ourselves that if we had been in their shoes, we definitely would have believed Jesus. We, if we were standing there, right, and Jesus said, I'm from heaven, we were certain we would have believed him. And then John the Baptist is doing all the baptizing, and, Jesus, and he points to Jesus and says, the Lamb of God, the, the Son of God, and we say, we, we would have believed him. But we, we don't often, right? Um, our pastor will say something like this to us. He'll say, I don't think it's wise that you co-sign the loan for your daughter's car or your granddaughter's car and we blow raspberries and we hem and haw about where does he get off right like who you know what how, how dare he or maybe the elders in your church uh, decide to, to, to do something for one reason or another might be you know even a, a good thing that they say no to let's say it's vacation bible school and they say we're not we can't, we can't do it this summer we'd like to but we can't do it and um, we wonder to ourselves who died and put them in charge right how how dare they how dare they do this to us we, we still are very much inclined to this same kind of sin, the temptation to disobey Jesus, to disregard uh, authorities that God has put in our lives on different spheres, right? This could be in a family or in the church or in the civil government. God has put these different spheres of authority in our lives, and the temptation for us is just as real as it was for the men in this passage to say, no, not, not interested, I don't want to hear it. Let's look at, together at the, at the next witness. That was John the Baptist. Um, Jesus, uh, this is not the only witness Jesus calls. In verse 36, he goes on, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Here we have the testimony of Jesus' works. We should again recognize that the primary witness testifying for Jesus is God the Father. First he sent a messenger, and now he sends works of power to demonstrate that Jesus is his son. Jesus said that these works were given him to do by the Father. These works are attributed uh, in our passage with the ability to bear witness about Jesus. It says that the works themselves uh, bear witness. There's a sense in which they have a voice, and that we, we still speak this way in our culture, right? We, we say um, actions speak louder than words, right? We still know that this is true, that the way somebody acts, the things that somebody does can uh, tell us something, can say something to us. And so Jesus is doing these miracles, 
And that, that tells us something about who Jesus is. Jesus works so far in John's gospel, five chapters in, include the miracle at the wedding feast. Jesus turns the jars of water into wine. And then you have the healing of the official's son. And you have the healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus didn't merely claim to know God. He did not simply assert divine sonship. He proved it, right? He showed over and over and over again with many, many witnesses, all these crowds following him, he demonstrated the power of God. This was plain to all of the people that were following him. It didn't equally produce belief in all of the people. Some of them were just there for the free lunch. Uh, but, but it was plain that this, the, the ministry of this man was attested by works of great power. Why then did so many reject him? Why, why did so many continue to disbelieve him after all of this? The answer again is that sin has a blinding, deadening, paralyzing effect on the hearts and minds of humans. We believe about ourselves that our own thoughts are rational. We believe that we're pretty objective in our assessments about different situations. We look at the unbelief of the Jewish leaders and we're tempted to think that we're, we're better than them, right? This is what we were saying a minute ago. We, we wouldn't have done it. We would have done it different. We would have got it right. We think our perspective is clear. Well, we're, we're modern. We've, we've got computers. We know how to figure things out. We wouldn't have messed up the God being sent from heaven. We would have got that right for sure. We think our judgment is more clear. We think our judgment is more sound. To believe this about ourselves is actually to make the exact same mistake that they did. In their assessment of the Son of God, they relied on their own broken, sinful minds and wills. They put themselves in the judge's seat, and they put God in the stand. Their pride convinced them that they could correctly determine the truth about Jesus' claims. Jesus will continue in John's gospel to perform many more works, right? This is just the beginning of the works, and he does many more. And actually, he does so many things that it couldn't be contained, John says, if there were a whole library full of books about it. He's going to go on to raise a man from the dead, right? He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's going to raise himself from the dead, and he's going to tell people beforehand that he'll do it. I don't, I don't think there's anybody in this room or any human has ever lived who would tell you that having seen someone raised from the dead, that he or she would disbelieve the person who raised that person from the dead, right? If we saw that, if we saw somebody raised from the dead, we know we would believe whatever the person who did it said. Whatever they said, we'd believe them. But this, again, is an underestimation of the power of sin, even in our own hearts and minds. There were many witnesses to the raising of Lazarus from the dead. There were many more witnesses to the raising of Jesus from the dead. The historical accounts of the resurrection of Christ are the highest quality records of any event in the ancient world. There's, there's nothing that is better attested that we have in our, in our world now. And yet, unbelief remains. It persists, even in the minds of Christians. What is your anxiety but a heart of unbelief in the sovereignty of God? What is your pride but a failure to believe that you are creature? What is your greed but unbelief in God's ability to provide? Do you see how this works? Do you see how this unbelief produces all of these things in us, in our daily lives, even, even now? We still sin the same sin, which is why these verses are here. 
Yes, the Apostle John is trying to call the unconverted into the church. That's, that's a clear mission of John's gospel. But he's also writing, he tells us this in, in his letters later, he's writing to build up our faith. He makes this clear as well. He wants to encourage those who are inside the household of faith. We need to be warned. We need to be told about the dangers of sin lingering in the hearts and minds of Christians. It's a powerful force. It's enchanting, right? It lulls us to sleep. It draws us into a trance. It numbs our sensibilities. Sin is an enemy. It's a sneaky enemy, and it's still alive in all of us. Jesus warned his disciples about the unreasonable nature of sin when he told them the story about the death man, uh, the, the death of Lazarus and the rich man. Do you remember this story? There's a rich man and uh, a poor man, and they both die, and the rich man is in torment in Hades, and Lazarus is in what the Bible refers to as Abraham's bosom. The rich man pleads with Abraham for relief for himself. That's his first plead. He's in torment, and he just wants a drop of water to cool his tongue. But then, when there's no relief for him, he starts to plead for his five brothers, that somebody would go to them and, and tell them and warn them about judgment and about hell and the realities of the kingdom of God. Abraham responds, and he says, they have Moses and the prophets. They have everything they need, right? They've, all, all this stuff is in the law. They've got all this stuff, and, and Lazarus says, um, the rich man says, no, they won't, they won't believe Moses. They won't believe the prophets. Send, let me go from the dead. Then they'll believe. If I can go from the dead, then I will overcome their unbelief by, by this uh, rising from the dead, right? And you all know what Abraham responded, right? He said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if somebody should rise from the dead. That's profound, right? That's a, a testament. Jesus is showing us what sin in the human heart does, right? It it's, wants to disbelieve. The next witness Jesus calls is God the Father more directly. So God the Father has been the primary witness the whole time, but we're going to sort of hear from him briefly in a more direct sense. Look at verses 37 and 38, if you would. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. As I've been saying right along, the primary witness to the claims of Jesus is God the Father. God the Father is the primary witness. Here, Jesus tells us that the Father is involved not only indirectly, he's not only sending messengers and works, he's involved in direct ways. For many of us, I think what's going to come to mind is probably Jesus' baptism, right? Where we have um, a voice actually come from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The other thing that might come to mind is the transfiguration, similar thing. This voice from heaven, this is my son. We have God the Father in these very clear and direct ways attesting to the personhood and ministry of Jesus. In verse 37 of our passage, however, Jesus tells the religious leaders that they have not heard the voice of the Father, and they have not seen his form. So which is it? How do we reconcile these two things? Jesus also said in another place, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So which is it? Have they, have they heard the voice of the Father? Have they seen the Father by seeing Jesus or not? 
I think verse 38 will shed a little bit of light on verse 37 for us. In verse 38, Jesus continued to tell the Pharisees that they did not have the word of the Father abiding in them because they did not believe. The problem wasn't that God had not spoken directly about the sonship of Jesus. The problem was not that Jesus didn't show them who the Father was. The problem, again, was unbelief. Many of the Jews did not hear the Father because their ears were plugged. They did not see Jesus for who he was because they had covered their eyes. The problem, to use uh, John's language from earlier in this gospel, was that men loved darkness rather than light, right? The light had come into the world. John bears witness to the light. Good news. The bad news is men actually like, like darkness. They like sin. They want to keep it around. They didn't want to see, and they didn't want to hear. Now, there's a distinction here, and I've referenced this already, that becomes plain in light of verse 38. Jesus is primarily, I think, addressing men who do not have the word of God abiding in them. You, on the other hand, are Christians, right? You do have God's word abiding in you. You have God's spirit abiding in you. You have new hearts. You have new minds. The thing that I'm keen to do, the thing that I want to do, is take this passage and apply it to us as Christians, right? I want to remind us that the newness of our minds is not complete yet. Our minds are being renewed, but that process is ongoing. Until we die or the Lord, or the Lord returns, we will continue to fight sin inside of us. Let's look at, okay, let's look at the last verses together, uh, 39 and 40. Jesus said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The final witness that Jesus now calls is the Bible itself, the written word of God. We've, we've heard briefly from the sort of spoken word of God, and Jesus is also going to call the written word of God, the scriptures. He's, he's referencing here the Old Testament. It would be the law, the prophets, Moses, and the Psalms. And these books, according to Jesus, bear witness about him. In fact, on the, with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, he said, the, the whole story of the Old Testament is all about me. That's, that's what it's about. It's about me. The Old Testament scriptures not only directly predict the coming of a Savior, they also theatrically portray many times what the salvation of God is like, right? This is what the Old Testament does for us. It shows us over and over again these little portraits, these little pictures, these little plays of what the kingdom of God looks like. It's like this. God's salvation is like the parting of an ocean at the last second to make a way of escape. That's what, that's what the salvation of God is like. The salvation of God is like David, the little guy that nobody thinks can do anything, slaying the invincible giant, Goliath, right? That's what the kingdom of God is like. The salvation of God is like Gideon conquering an entire army of Midian uh, with 300 people, right? He's got this whole army and it's just too many. God keeps saying, no, it's not enough. Not, it's too many, too many, too many. They're down to just, just a handful, relatively. The salvation of God is, is like that. The salvation of God is like bread and water in a wilderness. And the salvation of God is like a vessel of oil which never runs dry, right? Till now, the Pharisees have uh, assessed Jesus' witnesses. He's heard all these witnesses come one by one. The Pharisees have listened. They've heard them. And one after the, one after the next, they've sort of banged the gavel and rejected them, right? They said, nope, we're not, we don't believe this guy. We don't believe that guy. 
we don't believe this guy. Something interesting and something different happens here, right? They've, they've refused all these other witnesses, and we assume that when it comes to the written word of God that they'll sort of assess it according to their own understanding. They'll, they'll uh, look at it with a telescope and a microscope and all of these things and, and then reject the written word of God. But that's actually not what they do here. They do something different. The Pharisees love the Bible, right? This is the, this is the interesting thing about this passage. They search it with diligence, right? These men are religious. They actually want eternal life. Their, their um, senses are awakened to the possibility of eternal life, and they think that sounds pretty good. They'd like to have it. And they, they search, Jesus says that they search the Bible diligently looking for it. The problem is that the same sin in their hearts which caused them to rebel against the other witnesses is actually going to cause them to take this witness and turn it into God. They're going to take the Bible, which is a good thing, right? And they're going to turn the Bible, which is not God, into God. And they're going to start treating it as though it were God. They're going to make an idol of the Bible. Jesus said that they searched the scriptures because they believed they would find eternal life in them. The job of the Bible is not to grant eternal life. Now, the Bible certainly makes us wise, wise to eternal life. To, uh, Paul says that to Timothy, right? The scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. But the way that they do that is by pointing you to Jesus, right? The Bible is a good thing. It's God's gift in a thousand ways over thousands of years, right? I'm not saying anything bad about the Bible here. Don't, don't, don't hear me saying that. Um, they were, the problem was them, right? The problem was the sin in their hearts using the Bible uh, for their own evil purposes. The point of the Bible is to point people to Jesus. He's the light. He is the source of life. The problem with these men then wasn't a knowledge problem. They had the Bible. The problem wasn't a relational problem. They had Jesus in the flesh. The problem, as Jesus said in verse 40 of our passage, is that they refused to come to him. They refused to come to him. They would not. The problem was pride. Look down. This is a little, little bit below our passage here, but look at verse 44. Jesus said, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? The Pharisees refused to come to Jesus because they preferred the praise of men to the praise of God. That's what they were interested in, was the praise of men. They were idolaters. The God that they served was the approval of others. The Bible for them was a tool to gain standing before one another. You know, I, I, know, I know more verses than that guy. I've been raised in the tr tradition longer than that guy was. It's just, a, it's just a thing. It could be anything, right? It could be, it could be cars. It could be business. It could be anything. For these guys, it just happens to be Bible knowledge that lets them climb the ladder and, and gain rank above one another. That was their use for the Bible. The question is, do we, do we fall into these same traps? I think if we were honest, we would have to admit that we do. We, we do prefer the approval of others to the approval of God frequently. We, we would have to confess that sometimes we don't care much for the things that our pastors or other authorities in our lives have to say to us. The truth is, in many ways, day after day, we continue to disbelieve God. What about the Bible? Have we made an idol of it? I think that's a real possibility, right? Um, something that this passage points out that I think is sort of a, a unique thing here, that even, even the best gift of God, sin in the heart of a human being, will take that good gift and twist it and do something wicked with it. 
the Bible, there's nothing, nothing wrong with the Bible. It's, it's the sinful heart that will twist it. Have we, have we ever been guilty of this? Have we been guilty of dissecting it and analyzing it and cutting it apart and trying to, you know, Jefferson famously cut out the parts he didn't like. Do we, or do we sort of do that in our own minds? We don't actually take scissors to it, but we sort of maybe don't read this part very often. Do we, do we treat it like that? Have we made an idol of it? I think that's a possibility. There's a solution to all of this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer a solution. It's pretty simple. It's sort of hopefully a singular solution. So, so what? I've, I've tried to demonstrate that there was sin operating in the hearts of the men responding to Jesus here. I've tried to take it and apply it to us. Hey, you're Christians, praise God, but there's still sin operating in your heart. Beware of it. Um, and so the question is, now what? Now, now what do I want you to do with it? And so the, the take-home here is really simple. The homework is simple. It's one, one thing. The antidote that I'm going to suggest for all of this is prayer. The, the antidote that I'm going to suggest for all of this is prayer. Ask yourself this question. When you wake up in the morning, is it easier to pray or to read your Bible? I'm not saying you should neglect your Bibles. I'm not, I, I want you to... <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble with Ian for, for <laughs> preaching on why his congregation shouldn't read their Bibles anymore. I'm not saying that at all. I think for a lot of people, the harder thing is to pray, Right? Lots of people in our world do read their Bibles for lots of other reasons. People have um, historical interest in it. People have interest in the poetry in it and, and the ancient languages. Lots of people read the Bible for lots of other things other than getting to know and spending time with God their Father, right? On the other hand, I suspect that there are very few people who spend a lot of time praying who aren't actually desiring relationship with God. Uh, I think it's, that's a, a, probably a much more rare thing where people sort of experiment with uh, lots of quiet alone time praying. Um, you know, I, th I think it's a, a different thing. The Pharisees prayed too, but their prayer was, uh, they did the same thing with prayer that they did with the Bible. It was just a tool, right? It was just a lever to gain standing between each other. This is why they did it out loud in public when they fasted, they, they messed up their faces and let everybody know what they were doing. There was no secrecy. There was no privacy. This wasn't about intimacy with the Father. This was just a game, like they're reading the Bible was. It was a game to, to gain standing before one another. That's not the kind of prayer that I'm talking about. The kind of prayer that I'm talking about is the kind that happens in the dark, in your closet, when you're alone, when nobody's looking, when nobody sees, when nobody knows except you, right? Do you, do you go there, just you and your God, and spend time with God the Father when there's nothing else to be gained from it except everything that can be gained from having the God of the universe answer your prayer, right? This is the kind that nobody else sees. This is the kind of prayer that the world has no use for. It takes faith to do this. It requires that we believe God exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. As Christians, we must not neglect prayer. This passage teaches that there's a kind of way to read your Bible which will not yield fruit. But we want to be the kind of Christians that do read our Bibles and get the good stuff out of it, right? We don't want to just read it for the sake of reading it. We want to, we want to read it and um, we want to have it point us to Jesus, that we would have this life. That's, that's what the point is. 
if we want that, if we want the Bible's meaning to get into our hearts, then maybe we should ask God to do that before we read it, right? <laughs> God, there's a problem with my heart. It doesn't like to believe the things that I'm about to read. Please, please overcome this, right? <laughs> God, there's a problem with my heart. It, it uh, is not interested right now. It's interested in doing other things. Lord, please help me to want to pray. Help me to have joy in prayer. Help me to um, eat what's here in your word as I, as I look at it. Help me to see it and to get it. If we want the ministry of our pastors, right, these uh, figures of authority in our lives to bear fruit, we should pray for them, but not just for them. We should pray for ourselves, right? We should pray that we'd be able, when they say something to us, right, they know they've got to say something hard. They've prayed about it all week, and they muster the courage, and they say it, and we've got to pray that, God, give me the right response to this. Thank you that I have a pastor who loves me enough to say something hard to me. Help me to, help me to listen to this guy. The human heart is deceptive. The human mind is frivolous. With God's help, our minds can be renewed. Our wills can want what is right. Our hearts can love what is good. To pray requires a posture of humility towards God. There is a recognition that I'm unable to see what is true, and I'm, I'm unable to hear what is right, and I'm un, unable to do what I know I ought to do, and I'm unable to feel what I should feel, and so in prayer, what we're going to do is we're going to say, Lord, help me to do these things. Help me see. Help me hear. Take away my unbelief. Prayer is asking God to do what we cannot do. As Christians, we recognize that apart from the power of God, we can do nothing. This passage demonstrates what man cannot do. It shows very clearly that man cannot muster belief in himself. The answer is that what's impossible with man is possible with God. Pray and ask God to continue to grant faith and belief in you. Pray each day that the Lord would not lead you into temptation, but that he would deliver you from evil. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's uh, stand and we'll sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, 